Welcome to Sit Quietly, a podcast about meditation. interested in a meditation practice come once we're able to sustain a daily practice over the course of months and years. It's not to say that we don't feel good while we're doing it or that we don't see any benefit before then, but the real shifts, the real lightening of your load comes if you're able to continue your practice in a regular way over the course of months and years. That can seem daunting, but the great meditation systems and traditions of the world grew up in such a way and were developed in such a way to be able to handle that and to be able to give us ways to sustain our practice, deepen our practice, support our practice, and are most often based on a deep understanding of the human condition and what really drives us. That means we can still learn from them even if we don't have any interest in ascribing to one You don't obviously have to become a Buddhist to learn from the Buddhist tradition, for example. There are really good reasons to, at the very least, use traditional models as a way to structure our own practice and lives. At the end of this episode, I'll give some simple recommendations for a potential approach to structuring your own life based on especially some of the overlap between approaches. One of the things that's increasingly remarkable to me is the insight that traditional methods have into the human condition and how to handle it in a calm and open way how to deal with the stuff that comes up with living in the world. The insights are generally found when someone or a text from the tradition is assessing the qualities of the various types of seekers and the internal states that they may experience 
and how even that might translate into behavior in the world. You can see this in the Tao Te Ching, you can see it in the Dhammapada, you can see it in the Bhagavad Gita. According to these same traditions, the deeper motivation is to avoid pain in our lives and to have as many pleasurable experiences and repeat those experiences as we can. The idea here is not to reject things that you like, but to understand that when we are making decisions, that at the deepest level, what we're trying to do is avoid pain. And so the concept is in these traditions that if we learn how to handle pain, then what happens in our life, whether it's pleasurable or painful, it doesn't disturb us. We can deal with it. That's why you find meditation as the centerpiece for most traditions, because it can be really difficult to tell the difference between that deep urge of self-protection and what's actually going to be able to make us handle our lives in an even way. With the sensitivity that we develop in a meditation practice, combined with the insights into the qualities of seekers and masters, we have pretty powerful tools to be able to tell this difference between the sort of primal urge to self-protect and what will bring us lasting contentedness and peace. easiest access to these insights and these standards is through a lineage and through, as I mentioned, the texts in that lineage, particularly a teacher or a master of a tradition is extremely valuable along these lines because they can take a look at you and get to know you and get to know what your preferences and needs actually are and help you negotiate a lot of these things in a very individualized way. And you can ask them questions directly and you might get a different answer than even a text that's associated with a particular tradition but until you meet someone like that, then the easiest thing to do is to look at the texts that are associated with the great meditation traditions, see how they assess the seekers in those traditions, the, the practitioners, see how they assess the masters of those traditions, and then what you can do is compare to yourself and your own experience and apply what you can and what feels right to you, and use those texts especially as a benchmark, as a reference point, or as a friend of mine says, a fact checker. This way we can take advantage of not reinventing the wheel for ourselves by building on what 
the various traditions say about the process of meditation. And we can also see what happens within ourselves when we apply principles from within a given tradition. The other thing that lineage and texts can help us understand is how much we actually have to learn and they can help us to develop the humility to be open to learning. Especially when it comes to being able to sustain a practice over the course of a long period of time. Having a structure to do that really can be pretty valuable for many people. And most traditions have recommendations along those lines, what to practice and when. They also give you people to practice with, with festivals or rituals that people come together in some way. And so then you have people who are on the path that you can use as a reference in a different way from someone like a teacher, but that can inspire you and help you. And some people will even practice together. One of the things that I personally want to emphasize pretty strongly is the approach to health that's present in the great traditions. We, especially in the West, tend to silo things, and it's a result of the intellectual approach to the world where we necessarily break things down into digestible parts so that our mind can comprehend it. So we end up with a bunch of compartments. We have physical health over here, and that is further divided into diet and exercise. We have mental health over here, and then we have meditation over here and spirituality over here. We have work somewhere in there. We have family somewhere in there. But they're all separate. In most of the traditional systems, there was no real separation between your practice and your daily life. And that's not just to say that your practice took so long that it was the only thing you could do. For ascetics, this is true still. It's more the worldview that came as the result of looking at how all life and everything that we experience in the world affects everything else. This is a very common comment from astronauts who spend time in the International Space Station. They look down and it becomes very obvious to them how connected everything on Earth is. Since everything is connected in the external world, then it stands to reason that it would also be connected in the internal world, that our emotions affect our body, and that our body affects our emotions, and 
that our mind being calm or our mind being agitated has effects on our emotions and our body. Even deeper, all of these interweaving effects have to come from somewhere. And by experience, most systems arrived at the conclusion that everything happens within a supporting and very subtle context that really can't be described with language. There's another correlation here in modern physics where the theory is that the observable universe, the experienceable universe, is sort of a superimposition over top of a more subtle substratum or underpinning. For the individual, if that underpinning gives rise to life, then the best we can do for our well-being is to get in touch with that as deeply as possible. We become aware of that subtlety through our feeling of no homework, the steady sense of safety or peace within us. To build on the concept of the natural world as a model for internal health, we can think of that feeling, that awareness, as functioning like a river in an ecosystem that provides for the surrounding flora and fauna. The main thing we do for our health is keep the, the connection to that river healthy. And then all of the other things will naturally benefit and become healthier. They do work both ways, which is why you have traditions like Ayurveda and acupuncture that work on the physical body and work on the emotions and regulating those things. Because if we calm our emotions and we aren't sick, then it's easier to get in touch with the feeling that we have within us of peace, our meditative practice. One of the things that we really need to learn to adjust is that, especially in the West, we tend to think of health as someone who eats salad and goes for a jog. And that is a very narrow piece of health in most meditative traditions. So taking meditation out of these traditions is okay. As long as we understand that the safest and best place to put the foundation of our health and happiness is on the feeling that we access through meditation. And the other efforts towards health should be in support of it for all of them to be the most effective. You can even see a sort of re-uncovering of this idea in psychology, particularly in the study and treatment of trauma in people who have experienced traumatic events or long-term emotional abuse we often see, after a long enough period of time, physiological symptoms that come from being in a constant state of fight or flight. And on the treatment side, with something like EMDR specifically that involves 
bilateral sensory input and eye movement. There are in the yogic tradition specific practices that are designed to regulate the emotions in the body that involve similar types of eye movement practices and bilateral stimulation. A lot of this is also geared towards the concept that for us to be contributing members of society, if we can find balance within ourselves, then we can more effectively contribute to the world and the people and the beings in it. And if we take care of that first, we actually do the most benefit to everything and everyone around us. And this takes a change of our mind, and that's simple, but takes a lot of work. And having a whole-life approach is a smart and time-tested way to do it. You don't have to do it all at once or jump into a pre-existing system. If we have the foundation of our practice, and that's the thing that all of the other activities in our life are based on, then we give ourselves the best shot of being able to handle our internal and external worlds. And to, in general, be content with our lives the way they unfold. pieces of advice that I think are a really good starting point all come from great teachers in the tradition that I'm part of, but they were given to people from a variety of backgrounds. So I think they're safe as general recommendations, things that we can apply on our own without guidance. They also echo or overlap with similar recommendations that I've either experienced or read in other traditions. The first is a litmus. We need one of these because eventually, even if we do find a teacher or at least become part of a tradition that we're following, we have to do our own work internally. No one can do it for us. We can build on what others have done. We can follow suggestions and the guideposts that great teachers have left for us. But we have to feel our way for ourselves. And so for that, we need a standard. The best standard that I know of is the peace we feel in our practice. If the things that we're doing in meditation and that support meditation 
make us feel more peaceful in general, sort of on balance, then we know we're on the right track. The same standard can be applied to texts and even people. One of the great teachers said that you judge a teacher by the peace you feel in their presence. And so I think for any practice or study or information that we're getting that we want to see whether or not it's something that we should include in our own efforts, this standard of the coming out with a sense of peace is a really good pole star. The second piece of advice is to do your daily practice. Take care of your work life, your personal life in the best way you can. But every day do your meditation practice. But once a year, go on a meditation retreat where you just devote all of your time to your practice. You don't have to leave your home to do this. The idea is that you give yourself a break from your regular responsibilities and devote yourself just to your practice. I encourage people, in addition to this advice, that if they can, to try and work their way up to being able to do their meditation practice, their main practice, for 25 minutes at a time. There are a lot of ways you can work up to this. It's more important that you practice every day than that you make a certain time quota. From a modern skills-building standpoint, if we can do something for 20 or 25 minutes at a time, it's pretty beneficial to us. Finally, the recommendations for taking care of the body. Even though this can pretty widely vary from tradition to tradition, I think that the most broadly applicable and easy-to-follow advice is to be moderate in your food and sleep. So, especially for food, not eating too much at once. The teacher who recommended that also recommended to pretty much everybody that came to visit him that they take a walk around the hill that his ashram is still on today. It's a flat walk, and I infer a certain amount of reverence or internalization that is sort of implied in that recommendation. So for us, whatever physical exercise we do, it doesn't have to be a walk like that, but it should be done in that spirit. 
If we can apply those three things, where we have our litmus for what is or isn't good for us, meditate every day, but once a year, go on a meditation retreat for a few days, and in the meantime, be moderate in your sleep and eating, and do some gentle exercise regularly. If we can do those things, we're setting ourselves up to be able to have our practice affect our whole lives in a positive way and be the thing that grounds our negotiation of the world. It doesn't protect us from bad things happening to us or good things happening to us but it makes it so that we have a framework to be able to handle what comes. Eventually, it comes with practice. Thanks for listening. If you have any requests, send me an email at joel at thesoundandthelight.com. Until next time, happy practicing. Jai Guru.